You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Okay, if you've got your Bibles with you or your electronic Bibles or laptops, whatever it is, we're into John chapter 3, not surprisingly again today. Excuse me. I've been around for long enough, and a few of us have, to see some interesting shifts in the way we Aussies and Westerners in general view our governing leaders. When I was young, there was a significant level of respect for our Prime Minister and their politicians in Canberra, and especially for the Queen. And the Queen has been reigning for 60 years, 70 years, something like that, staggering length of time Um, and there was a significant level of respect for her as well if the Prime Minister visited a rural community for example um, they would tidy up the streets they would uh, put banners along the sides of the roads people would turn out in huge numbers to wave little Australian flags as the Prime Minister drove down the street nowadays though if the Prime Minister visits a rural community, the people most likely interested in it are the TV news crews hoping to catch him saying something stupid. And the road is more likely to be lined with protesters hurling abuse at the Prime Minister than people waving Australian flags. Granted, many of our politicians and leaders in recent decades haven't done themselves any favours getting caught in scandals and corruption, outright lies, um, abuse of their their privilege and and power, um, extortion, uh, doing all sorts of things that are not right for a leader of the country and saying some pretty silly stuff too, some of them, and making some silly decisions. So they haven't done themselves any favours. But the point remains that there's always been good leaders and bad leaders throughout history. There's always been honourable leaders and corrupt leaders. But recent history shows that there's been a a marked change in attitude towards our leaders, I think. I mentioned the Queen before. She's officially our Head of State. And attitudes towards the Royal Family have shifted in recent decades too. In fact, they seem to have come full circle. Decades ago... People would turn out in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands to catch a glimpse of the Queen and Prince Philip if they happened to visit our country. Then interest began to drop off through the probably the 80s, the 90s. Interest started to drop off. Certain members of the royal family uh, behaved poorly and we began to question whether we should even care about them, let alone have formal ties to them. So a Republican movement began to spring up and gain steam here in Australia. One stage we even had a referendum to hear the will of the people about whether we should abandon our ties to Mother England and become a republic. There was significant support for the change. There was some pretty serious campaigning that went on, but they didn't get a majority, the majority they were hoping for, to change our constitution and break our ties with England or with Britain, I probably should say. Now, I'm not an analyst, but I think the problem the Republicans had 
was less about Australians wanting to hang on to an outdated system of government and ties to the Queen and more about concerns of what would replace our current system of Westminster government with the Queen as our head of state. I think our attitude basically was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think we actually have a pretty good system of government here in Australia, probably, to my opinion, probably one of the best anywhere in the world. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. In recent years, though, there's been a growing fascination with the royal family, helped, I think, by a queen who has been a bastion of stability amidst chaos. There's no sign of corruption, no sign of abuse of power with her. And in chaotic times, that's something that gives people comfort, the fact that there is someone at the head who is stable, who doesn't shift like the the winds. And her grandsons too seem to be pretty smart, likeable, approachable young men. Um, they, for all their royal blood, they seem to be men of the common people, not up on pedestals. They seem to be pretty normal, well-balanced, stable young men. And it doesn't hurt probably that they've both married attractive young women from outside of the royal bloodline. Um, I would imagine a referendum for a republic in Australia today would fail miserably, which I think is why you hear so little about it in the newspapers now. They know that there's a respect and even a love for royalty at the moment that wasn't there 20 years ago. Interestingly, even the Americans who fought a war to escape from under royal rule seem fascinated by the royals now. So, why all this talk about our attitude towards politicians and the royal family? Only because in the last couple of weeks, as we've been looking in John chapter 3, there's a minor phrase there that's easily missed, but is actually a major theme of the Bible. And I think it's probably worth our time to understand something about this theme Um, We're not going to do it justice in the half an hour or whatever it is that I've got to preach this morning, but hopefully we can get a bit of an understanding of what it's all about. Two weeks ago, Harley did a great exposition of of the whole chapter of John, chapter 3. Thank you, Harley. First half, was it? I thought... Oh, okay. I need to look a bit more closely. (laughs) Then I followed it up last week by looking at Nicodemus and what it means to be a Pharisee. And then this week I want to have a closer look at that one little phrase that Jesus used twice in his conversation with Nicodemus. So if we can have John chapter 3 up on the screen, starting from the beginning. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is his spirit. So Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again to see or to enter 
the kingdom of God. When we read that, we naturally notice the born again part, and that's right, because it's the the major point of that particular passage. Um, In the not too distant future, I hope to look a bit more closely at what happens when we're born again. It's a big but a very important topic, and I want to be able to do it justice. But for today, I want to look at what we are born into, the kingdom of God. As I mentioned earlier, it's a major theme of the Bible and a significant one in the New Testament. In fact, it's referred to at least 150 times in the New Testament and uh, two-thirds of all those references are in Matthew and Luke. Now, there are several different understandings of what the Bible means by the kingdom of God and the equivalent phrase Kingdom of heaven seems to mean the same thing and in fact the term salvation seems to mean the same thing in scripture. But unlike a dictionary or an encyclopedia, the Bible never clearly defines what the kingdom of God is. So I guess we better start with a basic definition to help us get a handle on it and then uh, we'll see if the Bible supports that definition. So broadly speaking... The kingdom of God is the rule of God over all creation. Begins with creation itself. As creator, God determined where each of the stars would go in the skies, for example. As creator, he determines the rules that govern his creation. Rules like gravity and the seasons, the properties of metals, the lifespan of every animal and every human. God determines those. As creator, he has the right to insist that every part of his creation obey his rules and in his sovereignty nothing is permitted to deviate from God's intention for it. So broadly speaking, God is king and the kingdom of God is all of creation. More more narrowly and more Personally, the kingdom of God is his rule in the hearts of men and women who have been saved by grace. By saving them, by saving us, he's making them citizens of a new country. And that citizenship comes with certain rights, certain privileges and certain responsibilities. This rule is then extended corporately as he seeks and saves the lost, he causes them to be born again. And he brings them together into that new citizenship and into local churches. One of the confusing things about the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is the question is the kingdom of God present now or is it still to come? And the short answer is yes. It is now and it is still to come. As per our definition, there is a sense in which it is now and has always been present because God is the sovereign king of all his creation. But then as we see in the Gospels, the kingdom came in Jesus' ministry on earth but was not completed. So there is a completed kingdom to come in the future. Now it might seem a little bit hard to get your head around but it shouldn't be too difficult because we all know from prophecies in the Old Testament often had an immediate or near future fulfilment of the prophecy and then a 
more distant future. Psalm 22 that Tracy read for us this morning, prophetic of Christ on the cross. But it was David writing about experiences he was having at the time. So prophecies often refer to now or near future and distant future and some prophecies still haven't been fulfilled in entirety. Won't spend too much time in the Old Testament today but I think it would be good for us to have a look at the foundation of the kingdom of God. The Israelites, as you know, were supposed to be separated from all other tribes and all other nations and not to adopt their ways. They were to put their trust entirely in God to sustain them and to protect them. Their leadership was to come directly from God with priests and prophets as God's mouthpiece. God himself was to be their king. In Exodus, Moses wrote, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, quoting God himself, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So we know the people couldn't help themselves though. They saw other nations with kings and they wanted and in fact demanded a king of their own. God granted their request, but he granted it with warnings about how those kings would abuse their power, would oppress the people, would exploit them, would tax them. He also rebuked them when he said to Samuel, they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being a king over them. So when they demanded their own king, they were rejecting God as king. And the abuse and the oppression and the exploitation is exactly what happened. With rare exceptions, the kings treated the people woefully, making themselves rich and comfortable at the people's expense. That, fortunately though, was not the end of the story. God's plan was for a new king to come, one sent directly from him, to lead the nation and to rule the world. All the previous kings were just forerunners. They were all forerunners of the true king still to come. So he said through the prophet Isaiah in uh, chapter 9 verse 6, which Tish quoted for us this morning, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Sure, you all recognise that prophecy. One day, several hundred years after Isaiah prophesied it, a child was born, a son was given. The person of Jesus Christ. Notice the precise language in Isaiah. A child is born, a son is given. Jesus Christ 
was born a man, born human, but he was given as a sacrifice for sin. Precise language. That child was born, that son was given, and he proceeded to establish his kingdom and his reign then and continues to do so today. The very foundations of the ministry of Jesus Christ are built on the concept of the kingdom of God. It says in Matthew chapter 3, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came to prepare the people for their coming king and he started by saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is who the prophet Isaiah had been talking about hundreds of years before when he said prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Whenever a king would come to town they would send out road crews in advance to make sure the potholes were filled to make sure the speed humps were smoothed off, to make sure the sharp bends were rounded out and make his entry as smooth and as comfortable as possible. Don't you wish the king would come to your council area and they would fix up the potholes in your road because there's a celebrity coming? John was telling the people in absolutely clear terms that the true king was coming. The king had been anticipating for centuries. John was also telling them that it's not just enough to turn up and see this king in your dirty work clothes. They needed to get cleaned up spiritually. They needed to repent. I'm sure none of us would be so arrogant as to go to an audience with the queen in our thongs and our board shorts with our hair messed up and dirt under our fingernails. If we had an audience with the Queen, I'm sure we would all shower, we would put on our aftershave and our perfume, we'd wear our best suit or go out and buy a nice dress for the occasion. We would do that if we had an audience with the Queen, but there's one coming for them who is far above any earthly ruler. Jesus got himself baptised by John, as we know, and then he started his ministry in a similar way to John, letting them know that the kingdom of God was approaching. It says in Matthew 4, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, again repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he also went on throughout all Galilee, it tells us a little bit further on, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. At one point, we know, Jesus sent out 72 of his followers to minister in his name, and to prepare people for his arrival in all the towns that he was planning to go to. And he told these disciples, Heal the sick in the town and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. And Jesus brings the kingdom even closer 
as his ministry develops. At one point, the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Satan's power. Beelzebub, they said, is how he casts out these demons. Jesus' response to their accusation was to say to them, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is now. It's no longer at hand. It's no longer near you. It has come upon you. Some of the signs of the kingdom of God are healings and deliverance from demonic oppression. The only reason we can see these things happen today and we can pray for them to happen today is because the kingdom of God has come upon us and healing and deliverance are part of that kingdom. Not just that the kingdom will come in the future, which it will, and which it will in its fullness in the future, when healings will be permanent, deliverance won't be necessary anymore because Satan will be crushed under the feet of Jesus. But it is present in part, at least, today. We need to be careful, though, that we don't divorce the kingdom of God from the king who reigns over that kingdom. The kingdom of God is not some airy, fairy concept like Mother Nature or may the force be with you, or karma, or other rubbish like that. It's too easy for us to do that, too easy for us to get caught up in all the benefits of the kingdom of God and forget why and who, for who the kingdom exists and what the demands of the kingdom are as well. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of the king of kings. The one who will come to judge the living and the dead, which is all of us. It's all of your friends. As such, there's some requirements and there's some expectations of us who are part of that kingdom. Let me start by telling you that the kingdom of God is good news. It's good news. Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And Jesus also said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's good news that the kingdom of God exists and exists today. And it's good news that the Father delights to give us the kingdom. It's not given grudgingly. He delights to give his people the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount, you recall Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Bible never hints that Christian life will be all beer and skittles. Never suggests once that we won't face problems, that we won't encounter tragedies, that we won't be disappointed, that we won't be persecuted. In fact, it tells us the opposite. Those are the things we can expect following Christ. Isn't that encouraging? 
we can expect opposition and persecution and hatred. The world is implacably opposed to Jesus Christ. It is relentless in its opposition to him at the moment. One day it won't be. One day it will be ruled by the King of Kings. The world is implacably opposed to everyone who is part of that kingdom. To every person who has been saved by Jesus Christ. Every person who has been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, Paul put it in Colossians, in whom, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The world will never let up in its opposition to us or to the king. But we can have confidence in the face of that opposition for our king is in control. Our king rules. If you're shaken up by the chaos and turmoil that you see in the world in world politics, you can rest easy. And know it's crazy. Politics around the world is crazy. But we can rest easy. If you're worried about terrorist threats and bombs, you don't need to fear. Now I'm not suggesting that as a Christian, you are not likely to be at some point caught in a terrorist bombing. That may happen. But you don't need to fear because God is in control. He is king. And the only things that happen in this world are what the king says can happen. Nothing else can happen unless the king says, I allow it. We have confidence in a king like that. We have confidence because we know it says in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. All things, not some things, all things, good things and bad things, work together, not independently of each other. They're all part of the puzzle of your life that God is putting together. And they all work together for your good. The only person who can make a promise like that is the king, the one who rules all of creation. You don't need to fear. You can have confidence in the face of every disaster, every tragedy. You can have confidence in the face of world circumstances and every political situation. God can overrule any and every leader, no matter how powerful they are. He deposed the king of Egypt. He did it with a man, Moses, who stammered and stuttered and couldn't string a decent sentence together to oppose the king of Egypt and destroy his kingdom. He did it with the kings of Babylon, the Chaldees, the Medes, the Persians, the Romans, the Greeks, you name it. Every political situation, every world ruler is subject to this king. One day, when the time is right, when he decides he wants to do it, he will bring everything in complete subjection to himself. And on that day, he will punish everyone who opposes him. 
On that day he will punish everyone who has persecuted his people. You can bet your eternity on it. We can also have confidence that as citizens of his kingdom, we have access to everything we need to live. We have wisdom, we have strength, we have direction, we have patience available for us to call on, peace, self-control, love, steel in our spine in the face of persecution. Everything we need to live, we have available to us as citizens of that kingdom. You name it, if we need it to live, as his representatives and his ambassadors in the world, he has provided this for us. Peter wrote, Second Peter, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we do that, as we pray for his kingdom, we can also have confidence in his provision because he also said, do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We have all things pertaining to life and godliness because of this king. Of course, citizens don't just get the benefits of citizenship. They're also required to obey the laws of the land. We, as subjects of the greatest king, have an obligation to obey the laws of his kingdom. For our obedience to him reveals to us the genuineness of our faith, but it also reveals to those around us that we're truly citizens of the kingdom of God. But be warned, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That single verse drives a dagger through the heart of any teaching that says that once you're saved, you can do what you like. It doesn't matter anymore because you're saved, you're safe. You don't have to obey the rules of the kingdom anymore. There are plenty who consider themselves Christians who would say, Lord, Lord, but if there's no, no obedience, if there's no sign of a heart that wants to obey him, then that says to me there's no real relationship. The person hasn't been born again. And therefore there's no entry into the kingdom of God. The simplest ex explanation I can give for that is that anyone who doesn't desire to obey this king shows that their heart has never been changed, 
shows that they haven't been born again. For a heart that has been genuinely changed, that has genuinely been born again, will want to obey the rules of the kingdom. We may do it falteringly. We may do it grudgingly sometimes. We may do it inconsistently. But our heart will be that we want to obey, that we want to bring glory and honour to this king. We will want to line the streets waving banners as he approaches and we will feel ashamed when we fail. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you have been born again, you cannot even see, let alone enter the kingdom of God. Paul said, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You must be born again. It's pretty simple. Jesus also said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember last week we looked at Nicodemus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were meticulous in their attempt to obey the finest details of the law. No one was as careful as the Pharisees in obeying the law as they were. And yet the standard that Jesus set for us is that our righteousness exceeds theirs. That would seem to be impossible. And in actual fact, it is impossible. But how can it be possible for our righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees? There is only one way, one way only. Your ancestry counts for nothing. Doesn't matter if you've been brought up in a Christian home. Doesn't matter if you can trace your ancestry back to Abraham himself. Your knowledge of the Bible and of theology won't help you. Your membership of a local church, even your involvement in that local church, counts for nothing except as an expression of genuine faith. It starts with being born again. It starts with repenting. That word again, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repenting of your sin and your rebellion and your rejection of him and putting your trust in this king, your trust in Jesus Christ. In exchange for your sin, in exchange for your unrighteousness, you'll receive a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, the righteousness of the king himself. Nothing exceeds that righteousness. And it's yours for the asking. What an incredible message of good news this is. The gospel of the kingdom is good news. He and he alone obeyed all the law perfectly. He did it on your behalf. He did it as your representative in the courts of heaven. If, if, if you put your trust in him. That means coming to him simply, coming to him humbly, 
Let the children come to me, Jesus said. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. There's a simplicity, a humility that we need to come to this king with. Let go of your pride and come to him. The kingdom of God is not directly visible today. It's not revealed by political power or military might. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, Jesus said. And he also said, my kingdom is not of this world, but his kingdom is real nonetheless. It shows up in people whose hearts have been changed by the Holy Spirit. It shows up in the way they act. It should show up in the way we act, the way we treat other people. It should show up in the way we love our King above all others. In what we are willing to lay down for our King. His kingdom has not yet reached its fulfilment. We know that. One day the King of Kings will return. Lord, let it be soon. But one day the King of Kings will return to collect his citizens, his own brothers and sisters. Have you thought about that? You are brothers and sisters of the King of Kings. That is a staggering thought. When he does, he will deal with every act of rebellion and treachery. He will deal out punishment with righteousness and justice. And he will put every last one of his enemies under his feet, including death. Then his kingdom will be fully and finally instituted, never to be opposed again, never to be overcome. Are you part of that kingdom? I hope and pray you are. I'm confident you all are, but you need to search your own hearts. Ask yourself the question, am I part of that kingdom? Who do I say this king is? You can determine that right now, that you are part of that kingdom. I think it would be good if we could finish off maybe, Paul, with that video psalm that we sang, Psalm 145. As I was preparing this, um, I did a search through my Bible for passages about the kingdom of God and one of them that came up a few times was in Psalm 145, which we sang for the first time last week. Thank you, John, for selecting that for us last week. And it talks a bit about the kingdom of God. That's God's plan. He prepared that, you realise. He prepared that we would sing that last week. He put on John's heart that we would sing it last week, that I would find it in my studies this week, and we could sing it again as a preparation for this message today about the Kingdom of God, and we can finish off exalting the King of Kings and His Kingdom by singing a psalm. Isn't it great to sing a psalm? Sing the very words of Scripture. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.